Welcome to the Raised with Jesus podcast and today's Study Saturday segment where we have Pastor Don Patterson and his wife Mary talking about raising Christian children and establishing the Christian home. Pastor Don Patterson serves as District President for the South Central Wisconsin District of the Wisconsin Synod, and he and his wife Mary have spoken across the country and in a few other countries in this world, talking especially about Christian marriage and building a Christian home. This is from their keynote presentation at the Christian Leadership Experience in La Crosse, Wisconsin this past winter, and you can check out the presentation handout in the show notes. Here goes. Good morning. Uh, we're going to be talking about establishing the Christian home, and uh, all of you know that are doing that, how hard that job is, how big it is, and uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, when you think about get, being given 60 minutes with 350 people, I think that's around 2,100 minutes of human life. It's a big responsibility. So we have a little bit of fear and trepida- trepidation standing before you to, to, to give some ideas that are definitive There are so many, 60 minutes is not enough time to do that, but we're excited to to speak to you. And so we distilled our ideas down for this conference to six pillars. And uh, if you know your Bible very well at all, you might wanna view this talk a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon shares this wisdom, and then he has a summary at the end, and it's it's the pragmatic wisdom of God applied to everyday life. That's the way we, we view this. And the first thing we want to do is tell you just a little bit more about our family. So I think that when you are going to give us your time, you might want to see how, if we're credible or not. So Mary's going to introduce our, our boys to you. I guess I'm supposed to click that. I think so. We're going to learn how to do this. These are the pillars in our lives. And uh, it'll also explain why we look the way we do, how tired and beat up we are. But uh, we love each one of them. These are my baby boys. So uh, just so that you know, they kind of smile even when I still call them baby. Um, The first one to your left is the tall one, tall, handsome one. That's Blake. He's 21. Of course, then there's my loving husband there. And then the the child in the white, uh, he just married this last May. That's Seth. He's our second to the oldest. He is a uh, financial analysis. He, he does mortgage-backed lending, um, mortgage-backed loans, excuse me. Uh, Blake, our 21-year-old, is playing football at the University of Houston Baptist. Um, the son to the right of the guy in the white, that's our oldest. His name is Donovan. He, is, he calls himself a fish farmer. So he's a biologist, and he works for Texas Parks and Wildlife. Um, our third son is Caleb with the beard. Uh, he married three years ago and is working in his father-in-law's well business. They dig wells, water, water wells. wells. And then our pretty much our adopted son, Josh. He's a son uh, uh, from another mother, and uh, <laughs> he's 27, and he's uh, working on his master's to be a physical therapist. Another thing that we want to point out is uh, these, these boys are all involved in God's kingdom work somehow. Uh, the far one on the left, the youngest one, is going with our youth group on the mission trip this summer. He uh, also is planning to do some more volunteer work that he's done in the community in the name of Christ. The, the middle son, that's, that's a wedding day, it's a wedding picture, 
uh, he's now a counter with his, along with his wife who just recently took classes and joined the church in, in our church. And then next to him, his older brother is an elder in the church. And then the next one down, younger brother, is an elder in the, another church. And I, on one day this last month, they both called me with dad questions as elders. And it was, you know, they were really hurting and wanted help on how to be an elder at that moment in their church. And I was like doing backflips that my sons were actively embracing the mission of Christ and wanting to be leaders in their congregation and were all in and trying to figure it out. And then the, the last one is on a property and maintenance at his church and, and staying connected. Uh, also, though, I'm going to share with you that in raising these boys, we've had one pregnancy before marriage. We've had one dismissed from a team and had to find another school. We've had one uh, that I had to call all the parents that, of the boys that he hung out with because he was involved in a, they all drank some beer one night they weren't supposed to drink underage. And I share all of that with you to say credibility doesn't come from perfection. This is not a Facebook family where we just edit and put out uh, all the good stuff. We're real people. And the greatest thing going on in our family is Jesus Christ and the gospel and not our perfect track record. And I hope that in the next hour, we can just drive home those six big points that we brought today that show you how this plays out in everyday life. And it'll reinforce a lot of what you are, are already believing. So there are this, there's the six pillars that we want to talk about. The first one is identity, and then purpose, destiny, forgiveness, truth, and kindness. So let's start with this one. One of my many trips to Milwaukee, it was several years ago before they prevented families from coming all the way to the gate. Uh, I was on a plane out of, out of uh, the city. I think we connected in St. Louis. Uh, a guy in the military got on the plane. Uh, he was in full uniform like this or his travel uniform. And uh, it was during in the middle of one of these wars that we've been in. And I was moved when I saw him because these guys are on the front line making life safe and for freedom for all of us. And he, as he got on the plane, and he's the guy, only, only guy on the plane like this, dressed like this. I um, watched him. Now, what else are you going to do while you're waiting anyway, right? And he, he comes down the middle aisle, the, the aisle, and he goes into about three, three rows in front of me to the right. And he has this huge soda with a, I guess it's a pop, which is some of you, but it has a, a lid on it. And he sets it on the top of the back of a seat. I don't know how he did it. And he he puts his suitcase up and he bumps that soda and it falls backwards onto the lap open, the person that's already sitting there. It's all over the place. It's, of course, that person went ah! and jumped up and there was a mess everywhere. The flight attendant crowded through the people and had rags and they cleaned it up. We went on the flight. We got to Milwaukee and we're getting off the plane. He's in front of me, so he's walking in front. There's another little kid that was in an aisle in between us. And as we're walking up that square tube, going up to the... To the, the uh, terminal, uh, in that tube, this little kid that's right in front of me with his mom is watching the guy in the uniform, and in, at the very end of the tube is a family with posters, welcome home, tears flowing, going down their cheeks, and they're, they're ready to welcome this military guy home, and this little kid says to his mom, isn't that the guy that spilled his soda? And I leaned forward and said, not to that family up there, he's not. And I'm telling you that story now because whenever I think about the power of identity and what identity is all about, I think of that story. And I want you to think about it too. Who are we? You must, as a Christian, a child of God, you must know who you are. 
We are not defined by our accomplishments, our uniforms that we wear, our titles, our mistakes. And we're not defined by any other, other people's opinions. We are defined by Jesus Christ. We are children of God. We need to know who you are. And that's one thing we've emphasized to our boys and uh, all growing up. You need to know who you are. You are, and here's a Bible verse where John, John wanted to make sure his people knew who they were. You are a blood-bought soul. You are a child of God. You'll wear a lot of different hats in life, but establishing a Christian home is establishing a Christian identity in everybody in the family. And everybody in the family is a child of God. And that will weather be, uh, all kinds of things that happen in your life. It's also a reference point to come tap back to when you need to make changes and you need repentance and you need to lead forward a, a, a heart that where it needs to go. Paul, Peter, and John all have a lot of identity passages. So Peter says, you are a chosen nation, a holy royal priesthood, right? Not what the, everybody else thinks that you are, the scum of the earth. Paul says, you put on Christ when you were baptized. You are a Christ-covered person. You are not to fall prey to the Judaizers in Galatians. Here, John says, see, you see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And we, in our circles, in the church circles, we struggle inside the church and outside of the church. Uh, with identity. Who are you? Well, I'm, I'm a pastor. Well, I'm not a pastor. Well, I, I went to prep, but I, no, I didn't go to prep. We've got all kinds of identity things that, that we, we struggle with. Strip them all away. You are a child of God. And when you look at yourself that way, you are poised to be a powerful leader wherever you go because you won't be defined by all those other things. This also came into action with uh, our son, Blake, as he mentioned, our 21-year-old. He's a football player. <clears throat> this last summer, he ended up losing his scholarship by a choice that he made, so he was dismissed from his team. Um, he had found out two days before I did, and uh, my son called me, and uh, we try to make our, sure that our so kids... So this is what I told him, you have to tell your mother. <laughs> we try to make sure that our kids are the ones that tell us, not each other. Because it makes them man up to whatever the, the issues that they have. And then plus, they get to see our reactions, and hopefully they're good reactions. Um, anyway, my son called me. I was in the midst with a bunch of women, and uh, we were out one night. And he called, and uh, he says, Mom, I have to tell you something. So, uh, and I was like, okay, you know, so I was listening, and the next thing I knew, it was pretty serious. So I had to dismiss myself from the group. Well, of course, I'm hearing that what had happened and that he was being dismissed from the football team and there goes all that money. Well, of course, you know, mama's thinking, cha-ching, cha-ching, there goes all that money. And I'm going, what did you do? How could you be so stupid? You know, that's what I'm thinking. But I, at that moment, I finally had to say, you know what, he's already thinking all of these things. I don't have to say that. that the only person that would please would be me. So at that moment, I said, are you, forget, are you repentant of what you did? He says, oh, yeah, Mom, I just feel so horrible. I just can't believe I did that. I said, Blake, whose child are you? Whose child are you? He says, what do you mean? I said, well, whose child are you? He says, I'm a child of God's. And I said, that's right. Are you forgiven? Yes. I said, okay, it's important from now on who you view yourself as. Are you a forgiven child of God? Or are you this person that had, did this incident? You can't let that incident define who you are. Because if you are, it's going to take you down a different road. 
But if you let the one who loves you and has identified who you are, that's going to take you a different path. So you're just going to have to be ready from now on when people say, oh, well, you're the one you, you did this. You go, you know what? I did that, but man, I have learned so much. Let them see the good side of you and what you have learned, not besides, well, they already forgave me. It's done. Make sure that they understand that you're a forgiven child of God, and you have to believe it. Um, this last October, he ended up at a different school, and at that school, he was out tweeting and trying to find a, a, a different school to go to. Um, he, one of these tweets, and I happened to see it, said, my mistakes guide me. They do not define me. They are lessons, not sentences. Lessons to learn, lessons to grow, lessons to better who I am. And I thought, man, that kid, he got it. He really got it to understand who he is in his identity. I think it's wonderful that the band, that the song that they're going to have us sing throughout the, this time together, is also about identity. And it was beautiful to see that we do have a purpose. So know who you are, know why you're here, and know where you're going. These are the first three pillars. Those are the big three questions everybody asks themselves every day, even sometimes without words. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? If you don't have satisfactory answers to those three questions, you cannot lead. You will not be able to lead yourself. You will feel hamstrung. But if you do answer them, you're going to be fine. And even pagans can give, find answers that are satisfactory to themselves that makes them somewhat of a leader. But if you are a Christian, you have everything from God given to you by His grace through His Word to know what, who you are, why you're here, and where you're going in every circumstance. So we're going to move to the second pillar, and that's purpose. That's why am I here? And uh, that gets defined throughout our lives in many different ways. So let's just talk about that briefly. Uh, when Jesus was challenged by His retractors, they were trying to, to trap Him. They said, teacher... Tell us what's the greatest commandment in the law. Let's see if you're cut, you pass muster. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Quoting from Deuteronomy 6. And then he said, but there's another one that's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at this next passage. All of the prophets, all of the commandments, everything in the Bible hangs on, the, the law and the prophets hangs on these two commandments. You want to talk about establishing a Christian home in purpose. Jesus gave it to us. The entire Bible can, and he was, a, he was a great reducer down to the simple things, can be summed up in the two great commandments, love God and love people. So we teach our boys, and I teach this at church, and many of you do too, that those are the two big things you want to ask yourself in every situation. What would show love for God and what would show love for people? Because that's your purpose in life. Whether you're laying in your sickbed, whether you are handling your own mistakes in public, whether you are given an opportunity to speak, no matter what situation you're in, love God and love people. My purpose in life is to love God with all my being and to love others as I love, my, as I love myself. So Mary's going to tell a story about how with one of the boys, this played out in her teaching him how to love the coach. Our second son was going to school here up north, and uh, in the middle of his junior year, we ended up bringing him home. He came home to live with us back in Texas. 
um, at that time I had to enroll him into school. I went into the school and uh, we were talking to the, the counselor and uh, this school I did not care for. Uh, the academics there, there were drugs. Its nickname was Stoner's Joint instead of Stony Point. <laughs> so there was a, a not so great of a reputation. So I said, well, I'm going to bring him to the school and then I, in 10 days, that was the requirement, I'm going to transfer him to another um, public high school. Um, well, when the counselor heard that too, she quick called the coach because she found out that he was a, a really good athlete and he played basketball and football and uh, loved all sorts of sports. So she called the coach in and uh, of course we had to get him in classes for those 10 days so the coach came in, saw him and saw his height and was really excited about his athleticism. And um, So we're talking and he says, so you're planning on transferring him in 10 days? I said, yes. He goes, you can't do that. I said, yes, I can. I can do that. That's 10 days. And uh, Try to tell my wife you can't do something. I may be little, but I still got a big punch to me. So he, uh, so we were kind of arguing about that, and I said, well, you get UIL on that phone. I want to hear it from their, their words and their lips than yours. So, because I didn't know this coach. I just thought he would just wants this athlete. That's all he wants. He's not concerned about his education. So he got UIL on. Well, it was obvious that my son would have to sit out his senior year if he decided to play um, sports and transfer to a different school. So it was obvious. The handwriting was on the wall. We needed to be there. We needed to stay at that school. So my son ended up going to school that day. And later that afternoon, I called the coach and I said, OK, where do you need me? Where do you need me to help you? In, uh, in the booster club, whatever you need for basketball, I'm happy to help serve. So uh, we worked things out. Well, then the next day, my son saw me. I hadn't even told my son. So we're at, I'm at the school, and I'm volunteering, and I'm doing stuff, and I'm helping the coach. Later that night, my son said, Mom, I thought you didn't even like that coach. I, and I said, I never said I didn't like him. I just didn't agree with him. But I'm telling you, I'm here to serve. You know, it's easy to serve God when everything is going your way, but it's not so easy when it's not going your way. And it's obvious, God has you here for a reason, and I don't know what it is, but we're here, and I'm just going to serve God where he has us. I don't like it, but I'm going to serve him there. Well, it turned out to be a big blessing, uh, because that coach we were still friends with, and, and, uh, and we had a great relationship with him. But the, the next year, my son ended up playing football, and the coach befriended him, and uh, ended up helping him get a scholarship to uh, uh, Western Michigan to play football. So uh, it was great that my son, I didn't realize my son had, was watching something that I was doing and, uh, and realized that there was a benefit in serving even when it's not convenient. Success and failure are two impostures that will try to lead you away from your purpose in life or tell you you have no purpose and your purpose is always there. Love God and love people no matter what situation that you're in. So uh, we meant, she mentioned uh, our son that was at uh, uh, the, at football last summer and then had to change schools. So our job as parents is never done, even with adult children. So you have this 20-year-old son, he's made a big mistake, but we're helping him rebound. We said, you made a mistake, but there's some people that are hurt. Have you thought about how you're going to show Christ's love to the people that you hurt in the choice you make? No. What are you talking about? Well, you ought to write them a letter of apology. Something that's big enough that's formal enough to match the, the severity of their feelings. They've got feelings. He wrote the most beautiful letters to a couple of boys and their parents. 
And it, was a, it brought tears to my eyes to see the love of God, the love of Christ, and the humility and the repentance that were all in those letters. And so I just wanted to mention that that's the way you lead a family through mistakes to fulfill their purpose. And we have his permission to be able to talk about it here. It's kind of fresh and raw. It's not that old. And he's, all, he's doing fine because he knows who he is in Christ. And he knows his purpose in life. And his mistakes do not define him. And that's what we're trying to drive home for you today as leaders. The third one would be, where are you going? So why am I here? No. Yes, why am I here? And what is my purpose? And who am I? Why am I here? And then where am I going? Know where you're going. Uh, someone said this to me not long ago, and I thought it, it has a lot of weight. Kids lean into what you tell them. And uh, what that means is, if you tell someone that they are a child of God, deeply loved by you and the Lord, and God has a plan for their life, they will lean into that. If you tell them that you are afraid, if they keep on a certain path, they're going to end up in jail, they will lean into that. And sometimes you'll hear that, you know, someone's in the grocery store and they're upset with their kids and stop doing that. You're going to end up arrested someday. And what they do is they set a negative reference point for people. You're going to be like your grandfather who was no good. Things like that. They lean into what you tell them. God would, does not lead us that way. In fact, a good example is Joseph. Early in his life, even though Joseph didn't necessarily handle the dreams well, those two dreams that God gave Joseph gave him a destiny, didn't they? Someday you're going to be someone whom your whole family bows down to. That was his destiny. It was almost like giving a child a gun because the way he handled it and then the way that God, his brothers were jealous already, they were more jealous and ended up being a really big circuitous route that God took him on. Paul did this, the same thing for Timothy, who was timid. We know that because Paul talked about that. He said, I'm going to tell you about the prophecies once made about you and remind you about them, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. By recalling what? The prophecies that gave you a destiny. So we don't have special prophecies about us. We have special prophecies for all Christians, but they are just as powerful and important. And so we want to share those with our family. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who, who holds tomorrow. God holds it. I'm going to go into the future. And here's just two of them. Okay? The top one is, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. When did Jesus say that? It was when he was about to leave. It was right before the Great Commission. And he wanted them to know that no matter where they went, God, he was going to be with them. Their destiny was to always be in the presence of the living Savior that's about to take away his physical presence. And that place, like we were singing about earlier, that destiny on earth was a place where Jesus is. Uh, Corey Ten Boom said one time, she asked her dad because she was talking about suffering. She said, Daddy, I don't, I don't understand what, uh, how I'm going to keep the faith when it's my, my time to die. And he said, Corey, when I take you to the train station, he said, when do I give you the ticket to get on the train? And she said, right before we get on the train. And he said, why do I do that? And, he, and she said, because you're afraid I'm going to lose it. And that's when I need it. And he said, that's the way it is with Jesus. When you get to that very last day of your life and you need him, 
that's when he's going to give you the grace that you need to die with faith. And you don't worry about that. He's going to take care of that. So where am I going? I'm going to live my life in the presence of Jesus, wherever it is. Secondly, Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. Night before he died, he said, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back to get you, to take you to that place. That is your destiny. They at that moment didn't want to be anywhere else than with Jesus. So him talking about going away was deeply troubling their hearts. But he said, you are coming back to be with me. That's where you're going. Amen? Amen. So we're going to heaven. That's where we're headed. And so everything else is preliminary. This is not the end. Mary and I are in our 50s. You'd say we're in the fall, maybe winter of our life. But we're not. We're in the beginning. Because we're going to be with God forever. That's where we're going. And that is that beautiful horizon that all of our life lived out in front of it lives in that hope and that peace. And that's leadership. You can lead yourself and your family with hope as long as you know where you're headed. That Pastor Billets would stand up here and say, Tom has, is home. Tom is home. And we all have that gospel to give us leadership, to be able to lead our hearts in hope, even though uh, one of our loved ones was struck down this last week. I also wanted to mention that with, with our boys, of course I call them our boys, I call them my babies, but when I'm talking to them and there's an issue, I always just say, I'm raising men and have a purpose that I'm raising men because boys don't grow up. Boys will not grow up, but men do. And I, when I'm forced to, they have friends and their parents do everything for them. And I refuse to do that. And they get angry with me sometimes. I'm even a realtor and I won't even help them look for a place to live. I'll look over the contract, but I won't look for a place for them to live. And they get kind of upset with me, but I'll say, you know what? I'm raising a man. And someday, Lord willing, you're going to be married and you're going to have a wife and you're going to have children. And you need to learn how to lead. And so I'm trying to help you learn that, le that leadership that way. I will say, wives, that there are moments in our marriage in 33 years that I've had the same talk from her to me. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you any stories. Maybe I should. <laughs> live, in, live in kindness toward everyone is another pillar. Uh, th there's many, there are many words in the Bible and many words in our language to describe love. The one I want to choose today, though, is kindness. In the, in the original language of the New Testament, it means to make yourself useful, which I know a lot of wives would like to say to husbands sitting on the couch watching a football game. Be kind. Make yourself useful. But it means to be used, to give yourself to the, for the help of another person. Some of you probably know about Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. We, we buy into that kind of reasoning when we think about expressing love. My two top love languages are words of affirmation and physical touch. Her top love language, she doesn't have the other four, she's completely deprived of them, <laughs> is acts of service. And so I do not love her if I don't do acts of service in That's her right. language. That's right. In her language. So kindness in a marriage and kindness in this relationship that I have with this person, for me to speak her language is going to be to serve her in it with acts of service. And that's pretty common, isn't it? And a lot of, uh, for a lot of women and a lot of marriages and a lot of men. So we're going to briefly talk about, though, the, this kindness from the heart. Because it's not kindness if I do it with a heart that's not doing it out of free giving love. 
And that's not created by me standing up here telling you rules about kindness or some guy's five love languages. It's created by a love we get from God. And you may not remember this, so I wanted to share it with you, that the love of God in the gospel is called kindness by Paul when he writes Titus. That little book, they're on the island of Crete. Crete is a, a place that's known for thieves, liars, and selfishness. The opposite of kindness. And so Paul's using these kinds of words. He says, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us because of, not because of righteous things we've done. We never earned it. it. He gave it to us unconditionally. Now that's important in a relationship. Because if I'm mad at her about something, I don't want to be kind to her. But I can still be kind to her even if I'm disappointed and angry because I love her with the love of Christ. It's not because of righteous things that she does. Although I am righteous. Yeah. So I'm going to move on. You know the rest of that verse. This is just in the next chapter. The grace of God is still talking about that kindness. It's that grace of God that teaches us to say no to being selfish, no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions and desires. So my worldly passion is when she maybe upsets me is to say, I'm going to go do my own thing and I'm not going to, we can just live isolated. That's fine. You can just deal with it. But actually it's the grace of God that teaches me to say no to that passion to get even and to serve her in kindness anyway. So um, here's where Paul says to the Colossians, clothe yourself in kindness. So I've got a couple examples. First of all, Mary does acts of service like many wives and mothers for her family all the time. And so the way we men operate is if we just lift our finger a little bit, we want the whole world, especially our wife, to give us praise and honor when they're doing Ooh, 10 I, times that much all the time. So anyway, we're, we're, this happened last week, both these pictures, her love language, active service. I put a washer, and, that's our washer and dryer. This doesn't always happen, though. This is rare. It was a teachable moment. So we're, Wells, we're a Wells Pastors family, right? Thrifty. You're going to pick up free stuff, right? She's a realtor. This family that had a refrigerator, a washer and dryer, sold it to her for cheap. I didn't think we really needed it. I didn't have the time. She said, we got to go pick it up because they're closing on the house. The new people are coming in. we got to get the washer, dryer, and refrigerator out of there. Get the trailer. I have a pickup truck. We're going to go pick, we go pick them up. I heard about We're driving home, and, and we, we have a cabin, and she wants to maybe put that washer and dryer in the cabin, so that's what sold it for me. Okay, it's free stuff, or it was a low price for all three. It's almost free. We're driving home, and she says, I want to try this washer and dryer in our house. Now, have you seen, guys, your wife comes home. She, she's shopping, right? She, she's buying a couple throw pillows for the couch. She buys eight. And they're all different, right? And what's her plan? I got to try them out. And then I take six back. Okay, so I've always thought that's the craziest behavior, right? Men go find a pillow you want. You buy them. You put them on the couch. Not quite right, but they're, they're, they're adequate, right? So you're not going to take stuff back. You're not going to plan to take stuff back. You do that when you make a mistake, right? So we're driving home and she goes, I want to try these out. You know what I'm thinking? These aren't throw pillows. I got to unhook the washer and dryer. That takes 45 minutes to get all that done. We got to get them out. And then we got to get the others in. And when we're done, she's going to say, I don't like them. 
So I told her that. I said, I don't want to do that because that's a lot of work. And I think you're just going to say, I don't like it. And I said, I looked at them. I don't even think they look as nice as the ones we Ours that we have are older. They look nicer, but they're older. I'm visual, so I have to see things. So I said, okay. So we, it took us that time, you know, to, we got them all hooked up. And uh, we're, we're washer first, then the dryer. And then I opened the dryer door and I, I decided, oh, there's the... There, there's that lint thing on top, right? The lint collector, and it's on top of the dryer. So I pull it out and I go, oh, there's lint on here from their house. There's DNA in there, this is gross. And she goes, Where, where's that lint thing? And I said, it's on the top of the dryer. She goes, I don't like those. They're supposed to be down in the door. Get these out of here. <laughs> Are you kidding me? And I said, he I'm not gonna tell tired. you I told you so, which means I just told her, I told you so. We got them out of there. Um, that's a Christian home is acts of kindness. Those are everyday occurrences. The other one was the same, the same era, the same week. We had, I had a half day off. We're going to put up drapes. We have a home. We've only had it for a year. We haven't had drapes up for a year. And I've heard that a little bit. And so it's time to put the drapes up. And I said, can we just put the drape? She said, can you, we'll put the drapes up on those three windows that are on that wall there. And I said, you're going to take a picture of this. We're speaking next week. I want everybody to see this. So... <laughs> When I finished that one, she said, let's do these other three windows. Wait a minute. I signed up for one set, right? We finished the other three windows and she said, let's go to the bedroom. I thought this is 33 years of this bait and switch, bait and switch. <laughs> and I said, why are you doing this? And she said, once I get you going, it's the only way I can get That's you to right. do this. So she's been manipulating me all these years to just kind of get you involved and then get you going. But acts of kindness being useful. I know. I think I know you know that I love you yeah. because we did it. We draw names at Christmas too. So anybody that draws my name, they always go, oh. So I know who drew my name because I always have, I say, I don't want a gift. I've got a chore. i got a chore I want you to do. So Yeah, you don't I, give her something. You have to give her a yeah, job. you have to do a job for me. So we have an unconditional commitment to be a blessing to others. Not if she just does it my way. I want to just unconditionally serve her. And if we can teach our kids that, teach each other that, and live that way, then that is, that is Christ in action. That is Christ leadership, leading, us, leading your own heart and not following it because your heart will lead you astray. And also sometimes asking questions, even within your own mind saying, why is it that they want it this way? Why is it so important? Because I know sometimes we'll go, what's the big deal? It's not that important. But apparently it is to them. It's enough to bother them that sometimes we have to think how they think. or, or their That's selflessness. Mm -hmm. Identity, purpose, destiny, kindness, and truth. Uh, we'll speak about each one of these as if they're the most important because they're all pillars. And pillars are all needed to hold up whatever building that they're under. Truth is uh, really tantamount of importance. Uh, I want you to just for a minute think about the way Jesus used the word truth. The, the word truth in the original Old Testament means reliability. It means a standard. It means something you can depend on. It's also used for the word faithfulness as an adjective. The word truth. It's our word, amen. And that's why Luther said when we say amen, we say, yea, yea, it shall be so. It is truth. So truth is that thing that's objectively true. And you are being leaders as Christians in an, an increasingly subjective society. Now it's not even objectively true that I'm a male. 
I have to subjectively decide whether I'm a male or a female, right? That, and this is, it's getting, it's, it's, it's speeding up at a, at a, a, a light speed rate of this, this addiction to subjectivity as if there's no objective truth. If you're gonna establish a Christian home, you wanna challenge your boys and girls and your family and you, each other that there are some things that are non-negotiable that were created by God and they're the things called truth. And they're wonderful and they're a blessing and they are your stability and your strength and your wisdom and your power and your peace. And don't think that Jesus didn't live in a world that was stricken also with subjectivity. We decry, I just did, about our country being where it is today or our Western world. But the world itself has been this way ever since uh, Eve said that it's not true now that the devil, I, I'm able to decide what truth is. And it's not true that God said, don't eat this tree from this tree. She decided she would eat from it because she thought it was good for food and able to make her wise. So you, when, when you're dealing with life, with your family, and you're going through life, you always want to come back to the truth. The truth is something that's much better than us two because we are flawed as parents. And so you come back to with your child, I'm, I'm leading you this way because it's the objective truth. And that will be your, your rudder as you go through things. So examples, the writer to the Hebrews said, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it penetrates to the deepest part of the heart, and it divides the soul from the spirit, if, as if you could divide those, because you really can't. And he says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the thing. The word of God takes no prisoners. It pierces down into a person's soul. It cannot be forgotten. It is, it is brought, when you bring the word of God to a situation in the fabric of the living that you do as a family, it is extremely powerful and it leaves everyone in the family to deal with God and not just each other. And I'm, I'm getting preachy here and saying it this way because this is a, a huge observation and frustration to watch families who may sit and listen to the word of God, but they do not actually share it, live it, and be able to, to articulate a word from God that speaks into the life of a situation in their family. And I'm challenging all of you, especially you non-reverends, that you would right now, no matter where you are in age or life, that you would start asking, how can I speak with love and faith the word of God into the situations in my family, in my life? And let the word of God be the truth that we all bounce off of. Without being preachy, that's a big challenge. And with, but, but be able to do it with love and faith so that the word is reigns supreme, as it really does. Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. Remember how she wanted to argue religion because she found out he was interested in being a, leading her soul in faith? And so he, she said, uh, I perceive that you are a prophet. You're, you Jews say you're supposed to worship down in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans say we worship up on this mountain. She wanted to deflect it away from her as far as she could. And then he says to her, Woman, the time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What's he saying to her? You have no business talking about worship because you do not truly worship God. But I want you to worship God. He wants you to worship Him truly, but you don't. You're not being honest with yourself, and you're not being honest with God. 
So don't talk about truth until you're ready to live in the truth. And I want you to, so I'm drawing you in. And he says, those are the kinds of worshipers that the Father seeks. And, she's, and then she, she says uh, something to him, and he says, go get your husband. And then she says, I don't have a husband. And then the truth comes down, right? You're right. You've had five. You don't live by the truth of marriage commitment. And now the man that you're living with, you didn't even bother to commit to him. God wants true worshipers that worship according to the truth. But the greatest truth is not the law, but the gospel. So by the end, the greatest word he said in that whole conversation was, I who speak to you am he. Your Messiah, your Messiah came to sit by the well to lead you to salvation. That love of saying, I am your Savior, I am here, released her from all of the shame and guilt that she lived as she lived the lie. She ran into town to the people she normally avoided, free by the grace of God, and said, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. She was completely transparent. They all knew about her sins anyway, probably, but she's now completely transparent. She's not hiding behind them. She has established a Christian heart. Jesus has established it in her life. And she says, come and see him. Could this be the Messiah? And then when they came out to see Jesus and he taught them more fully the gospel that he was coming to bring, it says, they said to her, we don't believe in him because you told us about him. We believe in him because he's taught us himself. That's what we're trying to get across right now when we talk about truth, is that in a family, you want the children to say, we don't believe just because you told me. We believe because Jesus has taught us himself. And that's, you've got to give them every opportunity through teaching them the word of God in your home. Um, truth is formational and informational. Informational is the facts themselves. Formational is that the way it shapes your life. Parenting and relationships and friendships and discipleship are about taking the information and, and pressing it into the formation of each other. It's, the, it's stirring each other up to love and good works. It's being the salt and the light. It's being leaders in your, your home. And it's pressing it. And it is hard work. And there's pushback. And there's love. And there's challenge. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your strength. This is actually Moses talking in Deuteronomy. He's going to die. He's going to let, let them go. He's going to glory. And then he says, These commandments that I give you today should be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Not just in church, not just in Sunday school, not just in a formal devotion, not just in Bible study, not just at a leadership conference. But you actually share this as part of the fabric of everyday life. You know why? Because it's real. If it's only in a little package and it's tucked away and it's not part of your thinking and your whole integration of who you are, then it might be fake. It might be just an idea that's out there to choose among many other ideas. See? So this is establishing Christian home. It's living in this idea that the Bible is objective truth. And it's not just for tactical movements, but it's this whole grand outpouring of the story and the context and the gospel and if you don't know the Bible that well and you're sitting here at a conference, that's your clarion call. You go home and make learning the Bible on its own terms. And I, if, 
few of you are friends of mine on Facebook. Got to sit with John Lorenz, who's been a, a name and a leader in our church body for many years. He's in his twilight years. He was at a pastor's conference. Everybody left. He's retired. I didn't have to be anywhere for four hours. I got him for a whole hour. I never sat at his feet at MLS or a seminary or anywhere else New Alm that he taught. So I love getting time with him. And, I, and so we're just talking about the Bible. And this is what he said. The Holy Spirit is not Google, where you just type in a few words and you get the answer you want. And what he meant was, come to the Bible on its terms and let it teach you. Let the Holy Spirit teach you the, the grand truths of God's Word that he wants you to have. Beautiful insight about the truth of God's Word. Mary's going to talk about pressing this into the life of one of our boys and being truthful. Our uh, third son, uh, he decided he was going to, a, it was a prom, and, and, um, or like a prom, and it was a dance. And we had discussed what was going to happen, where you were going and everything. And, and uh, he'd said that there was a party in, at this one place. And we said, well, you can go there, but we don't want you to stay there. You are not going to spend the night there. You can go for a short time, but you cannot stay the night. And he said, that's okay. I'll stay with two of my other friends. I said, okay, that works great. And, uh, but we did tell him, you have to come to church tomorrow. So Problem this night, a, Saturday, Saturday night, right? Night. And we said, but you have to come to church tomorrow. And, uh, and he said, okay. Well, our son from another mother, Josh, was going to pick him up that morning and bring him home and get a shower, and then they were all going to go to church. I had to leave church, uh, for church earlier that morning. Well, that morning, I was a long-distance runner, and I was needing to get in some miles, so I was running about nine miles. Just and, nine miles. And uh, I don't do that. So I was running through the neighborhoods. Well, as I'm running through the neighborhoods, I notice I go by the two friends' house that he was going to stay at, and I notice there's no cars there. The boys' cars are not there. My son didn't have his, but those two boys' cars were not at that house. So I kept running and running, and uh, I was running through all these neighborhoods, and then I ended up at the house, going past the house where the party had been. And I drove by, and I thought, oh, it looks pretty decent there. But there's those two friends' vehicles parked in front. Well, it was early in the morning, so there was no mistake. They didn't just go over there during the morning either. So... <clears throat> I was thankful that I still had a long run ahead of me because I was really mad. And I kept praying and saying, okay, God, give me a teachable moment because I'm ready to kill me a child. And um, so I was running. And wouldn't you know, Sunday morning is communion too. So I was even going, okay, great. I've got to get this cleared up. So I kept praying and saying, God, give me a teachable moment with this child. I am so angry. And then I really had to get into to my own heart, what am I really angry about? And the problem was he had violated my trust. That, that hurt me more than anything. So um, Josh goes and gets him, and anyway, we see each other at church. Well, I had already made arrangements with this same son that about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he was going to need my car since his truck wasn't working, and he was going to meet his father at our cabin. Uh, but he first had to take me and the younger brother to a soccer field, and I was going to get a ride with friends. And I said, okay, we're going to drive to the soccer field, and then I'll, I'll get all my stuff out, and you can take my car. Okay, it was all set. So we still had that plan. And uh, as I was driving up to the soccer fields, 
I'm driving up and he says, okay, mom, just pull over here, just pull over. I said, no, I'm not gonna pull over there. Yeah, mom, just pull over and grab all your stuff and you can go, then you don't have to park. No, I'm not going to. I pull into a parking space. He goes, mom, why did you pull into a parking space? I got out of the car, I took my keys, I walked to the back, grabbed my chair, and my, son, my other son took off, he didn't know what was going on, and uh, he took off for the, the game. And uh, I start walking to the game with my keys in hand and my son Caleb's going, what are you doing? You said I could have your car. I said, you're not getting my car. He goes, what do you mean I'm not getting your car? I lied, I lied. You're not getting my car. And he said, what? And I said, how does it feel to be lied to by somebody you love and you trust? He just immediately broke down and just started crying. And he, you know, he's a teenager. He's like 17 or 18. He just started crying. I said, tell me everything. And so he did. And I told him, you were forgiven. I said, now, your father knows none of this. So when you drive and you meet up with your father, I want you to tell him everything. Because <laughs> I'm going to check with your father to see later. And he did. We always said, wait till your mother comes home. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> The little bulldog here. But um, that was, you know, God gave me that teachable moment. So sometimes you just don't react right away and just pray and say, God, give me a teachable moment. I needed to turn the table so he could have that emotion of having that hurt by somebody you love and you trust. And um, it worked. It worked. Good job. So we live in the truth about everything, God and each other. Let's go to the last one, forgiveness. Uh, could, it is the gospel. It could be well said that this is the defining truth, pillar of a Christian home over a pagan home. Because we have a God-centered, real forgiveness. It's not a secular forgiveness. It is a real forgiveness. It starts in heaven, comes to us, passes through us to each other, and it's real. It is one of the biggest things we struggle with as a church leader. I remember sitting in a meeting where a guy said, I said, okay, your pastor has just apologized to you. How do you respond? Dead silence. I said, you respond by saying, Pastor, we forgive you. This one fellow, Texan, deep south, Pastor Patterson, I'm just not that good of a Christian. I said, sir, with all due respect, 15 men in the room, I said, it's not a matter of whether you're that good of a Christian. It's a matter of whether or not you are a Christian, that you can say to your pastor, you are forgiven. It is the gospel. It is the defining element to forgive one another and to live in forgiveness. And establishing a Christian home, when your kids grow up through that home and they go on their way in life, the, the one big thing you want them to know about Jesus Christ is not rules. It's about grace and forgiveness and that they experience it in their relationship with you. And, and so we can't drive that home enough. Paul, when he wrote the Colossians, said, bear with each other and forgive each other. If you have any grievances against someone, forgive just as the way Christ forgave you. And Paul knows about how Jesus keeps coming back in his own earthly life, forgiving the disciples, keeps coming back to forgive Paul. And so we've got a couple stories. One is Christmas time. We don't grow Christmas trees in Texas very much. It's too hot. We buy them from you folks that grow them up here. And you send them down and make big bucks off of us if we don't have fake trees. And I grew up going to the Christmas tree sales lot to pick up a tree with my parents. So I'm trying to duplicate that experience with my boys when they were little. There were, I think it was two, three of them. They all three went with me. Mary's at home making dinner. I've got a, a Bible study to teach at 7.30. And so we go to the Christmas tree farm. It's about 5, 
starting to get dark, and it's like November, and we're, I, I want to pick up a tree, and I'm looking at this one, and I'm thinking when I take them, this is going to be this Charlie Brown experience with getting a Christmas tree with Dad, and we're building memories. They're running in and out of the trees. One guy, I hear the guy that owns the place yell, hey, boys, and the tree's falling over. I got so upset, I said, get in the truck. All three of you get in the truck. I'll pick out the tree. I went and grabbed the tree, and I bought it, and I threw it in the back of the truck. And I'm driving home going, this is a great experience with your dad to go get a Christmas tree. So I start apologizing. I'm sorry I lost my temper. I know you shouldn't have been running around, but I'm very sorry. This is not a great memory to have. Will you forgive me? Yeah, Dad, we forgive you. We get home, they run in the house for dinner. I cut the bottom of the tree off, set it in the stand, put a little water in it. Honey, I got to go. I said to the boys again, I'm sorry that I did that. What did you do, Mary said? I said, I, I got mad, and I, they forgave me already. And I jumped in the truck, went to church, taught the Bible study, came home there in bed. Next morning, Dad's the one, church school, at church, drives them. They all pile in the truck. We're driving to school, and I, I'm feeling guilty. So I said to the boys, I just want to tell you guys again how sorry I am that, that I lost my temper and yelled at you and made you just go get the truck last night. One of the kids in the back seat goes, Dad, we forgave you yesterday. Drop it. <laughs> I said, I like this. This forgiveness stuff works. They're not even thinking about it anymore because grace worked in their life. They understood it. I just want to say this real quick, too. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't know what that was like. But I know that every night I went to bed feeling guilty about everything I did that day, because I could always see all my failures. And uh, so one of the best hymns for me when I heard it, when I became a Christian, was, excuse me, was, uh, now the light has gone away. So every night I would seat that with my boys, because one of the verses says, uh, Jesus, um, now I can't even think of it. Jesus, um, Savior, wash away. Jesus, Savior, wash away all oh. that has been wrong today. And... Uh, I wanted to make sure that they knew that every night before they went to bed that they were forgiven for anything and everything that they had done, whether they had said it to me or to God, that they had that freedom of forgiveness. Okay. Anyway. That was wonderful. Sorry. Thank you. This fella is someone that I grew up with, and when Mary and I started dating, she didn't grow up going to church. She started dating me and, and, and through that learned about Jesus and then joined our church. She joined in a, a, a young adult Bible study we had every Saturday night. We, I grew up in Missouri Synod. I had not yet moved over to the Wells. And this is in Garland, Texas by Dallas. And this fellow grew up with me. He's five years older. So he was with, I have older siblings. He was with them in Sunday school class. But he was in the little church family. We had only 200 members at our church. And he disappeared for a while like so many people do. And we were, uh, we were a very active Saturday night Bible study group that did evangelism on Thursday nights and we were always trying to help for those few years we were there doing that as a young couple. So on New Year's Eve, he shows up. He had fallen away. His name is Mark. And he, and he gave me permission to tell this story anytime, anywhere. And he said, he, he showed up and Mark uh, we, was our age. So we invited him, said, hey, next Saturday night we're having a Bible study. Can you come to it? And he did. And at that Bible study, a week after New Year's, he said, I went to church at my home church, our church. New Year's Eve, I was going to go there one last time, and then I was going to commit suicide later that night. That'll pump you up to invite people to come to things, right? We hadn't talked to him in the hallway. And he said, but you guys showed love, and I'm here, and I'm just talking, telling you what's going on in my life. And he joined our group and became very active. Um, when Mark was born at the hospital, his birth father 
who had many emotional problems and mental illnesses, when they took his mom out of the room to go do a procedure, was holding his baby son, his firstborn, and Mark was unconsolable, crying. And you know what happens sometimes when someone with mental illness is frustrated. He, he threw Mark down to the floor. Just got rid of him, threw him down. And his head hit the floor, tile floor, and cracked his skull. The, his father ran out of the hospital, realized the you know, baby's on the floor and didn't know what he had, how badly he had hurt him, but he ran. And that was the end of their marriage. He never was a part of Mark's life. She met another man and married him, and he was a pretty solid stepfather. And they had more children, and they were the church fam one of our church families. Mark had epilepsy because of that his whole life. Severe epilepsy at times. If he misses his medicine, he has seizures right away. Mark has other, had learning difficulties, still does. He's now living in Katy, Texas, in, in, uh, down by Houston. He's in his 50s. But. He, he, uh, when he joined our Bible study group, grew in the faith, he had never seen his birth father. None of us really thought that we, it was really a big deal that he hadn't seen him. After all, the guy was crazy. Uh, he went on. Mark went on. We didn't think he could do it. But he went on to study at the seminary and became a, a vicar and then later a pastor in the Missouri Synod. Mark, Mark went down to vicar in Florida, outside of Texas, right? Outside of St. Louis. He's down in Florida. And his supervising pastors noticed that Mark talked, he would grit his teeth whenever he told his story and talk about his birth father. His supervising pastor said, during this year that you're here, I want you to go. I will coach you, but I want you to find your birth father. I want you to confront him and forgive him. I, I don't think I can do that. If you don't do that, you're not passing your vicar year. You're not going to be a man of God and talk to people about grace and forgiveness and not forgive your birth father. You've you got to get through this. They, they, they figured it out. He found his birth father. He was living in the middle of the United States, Indiana or somewhere like that. Mark got it. They paid, the church paid for his plane ticket. He flew up there. His father knew why he was coming. He's coming to talk to him about everything. And they met only at the airport. And he said it was the weirdest thing getting off that plane. He walked off in, in, into that terminal and there was a man who looked just like him, only 20 years, 25 years older. He said it was eerie. They sat down and his, he said, Dad, I'm here to talk to you about all that, what happened to me when I was a kid. And he said, I have epilepsy and I've had seizures. And he said, there's many times I've wanted to hunt you down and kill you. But I'm here to tell you that I forgive you. He said his father threw his face in his hands and just started bawling. And he said, how could you ever forgive me for ruining your life. And he goes, Dad, you didn't ruin my life. You affected it, but you didn't ruin it. God, God saved me. He saved me physically. He saved me spiritually. I'm a Christian. And he says, how could you ever forgive me? And he said, I can only forgive you because of Jesus Christ. And then he told him his, his own way, the gospel. He and his father, that happened, that, that happened at least 20 years ago, that meeting. And he and his father are still friends, and his father's in old age now. That's the grace of God. That's establishing a Christian home. That's forgiveness. That's the big thing that we have. That's a big thing we celebrate. And I told you that story to tell you it really is real, and it really does work. There are more things we could talk about, but we're out of time.
There are other pillars. I've got some there. Maybe some other leadership experience. I'll get to tell you those. Um, there's a passage where Peter says, you have everything you need in Christ to be godly. So don't think that you don't. Don't just stop with grace for salvation, but grace for also serving God. And then I just real quickly, parting thoughts, and Dan, we are wrapping it up. If, if I told you to think of Ecclesiastes when you listen to this talk. At the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, here's the sum total of my presentation. Fear God and keep His commandments because you'll, you'll give an account at the end of your life. Well, we're New Testament people. So here, here are the summary thoughts. God is real. Love from God is our only hope. Faith in God is the only way and path to live on. Fear of God is our only purpose. Posture, I mean. Our only posture is fear, which is a family fear. And the Word of God is our greatest resource. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us an hour together. Bless these words. Bless us at this conference. Help us to grow closer to you and each other. And thank you for the men like Mike Clad and Dan Koontz and others that had the foresight to create something where we could get together and talk about you and how you lead us. Amen.